Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day from the 9th Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna. With me is Professor Sidney Finkelstein, Professor of Management at the oldest business school in the world, I suppose, certainly in America, the Tuck Business School at the University of Dartmouth. And you've been talking about... What? Well, I've been talking about what makes for great leaders and maybe some of the characteristics of less great leaders, a lot of it based on work I've done around superbosses. Yes, superbosses, dangerous suggestion, because every, every manager then wants to be a superboss, and there are not many superbosses in the world, are there? The word superboss can scare people off, and it makes it sound like the all-powerful person. It's not at all like that. It is simply a new word I created. It is a boss that happens to do an amazing job in developing talent and helping people get better and in accelerating the ability of people to accomplish really more than they ever thought possible. Who doesn't want to be part of that? You put developing talent at the heart of what a leader, a boss does. Yes, I do. Absolutely. It's, it's finding the right talent and then developing talent. That combination is one of the biggest differentiators you're ever going to see. And it's hard to do, is it? I would have thought that uh, most people in a leadership position realize that they're not going to be there forever, so they need people to work with them and to them. Well, you would have made for a wise leader yourself with that approach. I have seen plenty of people that had a different point of view. And you know what happens? There's often this false dichotomy between, well, I don't have enough time to help other people get better. I don't have enough time to develop others. I have to make my numbers. I have to hit my metrics. But in fact, what they're missing is the best way to be successful is to surround yourself with great people. How could you not become more accomplished, more successful yourself if you don't help the people around you actually up their game at the same time? But it's tough to understand that, is it? It shouldn't be tough. When I explain it the way I just did, people, people get it. But when they go back to their own organizations and have to do it, it's hard. Well, it's not a simple thing to do. But one thing I, I will say is there are probably more super boss leaders than many people think. Because when you go into the middle of organizations, there are a bunch of people that just have this track record. You can could, you could actually measure these things, this track record of helping other people get better. And they're standouts in their companies. You say you can measure it. How do you measure it? I thought it was an intangible you couldn't measure. Here's how I've tried to measure it in my own research. I've looked at individual leaders, often pretty senior leaders, because more information is available on them. And then I would do what is the equivalent of a genealogical study of them, not their parents, to be sure, but who they work for and who other people work for. And when you start to do that, you begin to develop these trees of talent, if you will, that demonstrate who the key players were in any industry sector. And sometimes, not sometimes, always, there are these one or two people, almost like no in a system where so many people could trace some of their experience back to that person. And those are the people that I label superbosses. How has the idea of leadership been disrupted by the digital world, which has disrupted or is disrupting so many other things in business? Digital has changed in the sense that people are working at home much more. There's a gig economy going on that everyone knows about. And these things have changed the sense of day-to-day -day leadership because, you know, people are not necessarily sitting in the office with you at the same time. And so leaders have had to start to figure out how do they interact that way, how do they motivate people that they might not see every day, how do they provide the right type of opportunities for those people. It's a bit more work than it used to be. Don't they have to move faster, though? They can't be sure of anything anymore. Five years is... Uh impossible long time to think ahead. Yes, indeed. Five years is, is kind of 
nobody even talks that way. At least they should not talk that way. You know, one of the key characteristics of the best leaders, this has been true for a while, but it's even more true today, to your point, is agility is the word that a lot of people like to use, right? Agility really means the ability to adapt and adjust very, very quickly. And I think about the way people get hired and succession processes for CEOs, and you work with boards of directors, and they say, well, this is the way the world is going. This, these are the challenges we have in our marketplace, and so here's the type of leader we have. Well, how are, how are they going to know what the right challenges are two years down the line? They cannot. Therefore, the ability to find a leader that can adapt, can adjust, can be flexible, can have that, that trial and error component to him or her, I think is, is unbelievably important. At the same time, in most conventional organizations, people have spent quite a long time getting to the top, either in their own organization or in other people's. So they've got that sort of mentality. Agility would be described as opportunism in that sort of world, wouldn't it? Opportunism certainly is a negative connotation to uh, to what I'm thinking about. And it's not necessarily or even so much about navigating or maneuvering your career. It's about how to make decisions. You know, a great illustration of this, a CEO was once, I was interviewing, talking about what makes for great leaders. And he said, we're talking about decision making. And he said, you know, I don't have to be right all the time. In fact, if I'm right half the time, I'm going to be incredibly successful as long as I know when I'm not right and I do something about that. And that's the essence of agility. Self-knowledge. Self-awareness and the guts, the courage to do something about it when something is not going right. Because you can have a really smart leader who is simply too smart for the game, who outsmarts everybody else, and some of them even brag about it, don't they? I think maybe the president of the United States does at the moment. Well, intelligence is a necessary but not sufficient condition to be a successful leader, and too much intelligence can actually hurt you. And it'll hurt you because you begin to believe you know more than everybody else. You're ahead of the game. They'll catch up later. <laughs> well, that's not the way it usually works. Great leaders are going to be able to get people to accomplish way more as a team. And the team element is really the essential differentiator in a lot of my research between the best powerful leaders and the worst powerful leaders. Power in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's how you use it and how you think about it and whether you actually acknowledge and act in a way that helps other people in your team become even more capable. Slot the idea of leadership into the theme of inclusive prosperity, which this forum is all about. To be prosperous and to be inclusive both require great leadership on both dimensions. Of course, the prosperous one is kind of easy to, to understand, but the inclusive one is just as important. And it should be, to me, intuitive, but perhaps it isn't to, to many other people because inclusivity is one of the primary pathways to actually be more successful. I've written about this in a few different ways. You know, people talk about diversity a lot. It's another, it's, a rela it's not exactly the same, but it's a related word. Well, we know from an incredible amount of research that diverse teams will come up with, on average, better decisions than less diverse teams. And I think the same logic is going to hold for inclusive teams and organizations that can involve a lot of different points of view. Again, why would it not be true? If we have different points of view and we know how to manage those points of view, then we're going to end up coming up with a, we're going to kick the tires really well to try to figure out the right thing to do, or at least the best thing to do. And if we add that cultural element of agility that I talked about before, we'll be able to adapt and adjust when we don't have it quite right. Yes, but what people mean these days by inclusivity is the, or the lack of it is the fact that uh, people seem to be getting left behind by the wealth that's accruing at the top of organizations, at the top of society in general, that there's a gap which wasn't there, say, in America 50 years ago. 
In fact, inequality has increased in America, but around the world, and nowhere greater than in China, of all places, because of the incredible wealth of the tech sector, among other things. So how does that change? There are different political theories out there, such as you cut your taxes and promote business, and everyone's going to end up doing better. That actually hasn't been shown to work in the past particularly well. Nonetheless, there are many political groups in different countries, including in America, that believe that's, that's the case. I do think, however, that one of the key things you can do is to try to build or create more opportunities for entrepreneurialism. And the primary place where growth comes from, and I think this is true, it's got to be true in most economies, and it, is, and it is also true in the most developed economies, such as Western Europe and the U.S., it's small and medium-sized companies. That's where all the energy is. That's where all the growth is. It's not these big Fortune 500 companies and all the rest. And that's the place to focus on, I think. But the big ones are doing very, very well at the moment, aren't they? Well, that's not the place that I would make a uh, long-term bet. The data indicate that the probability of staying at the top in any one of these uh, sectors is actually not very high. You can go back you know, 50 and 60 and 100 years to discover that that's exactly what happens. Now, your smart leaders are going to face really large employment problems over the next several decades because it seems of the rise of artificial intelligence and the threat the perceived threat to jobs. And they're going to have to make decisions about employment, which people haven't had to make for many decades. Yes, it's, this is a serious problem. And the most serious part of the problem, I think it's going to reach a level of general recognition. Now there are people, some people in business and maybe uh, parts of government that talk about it. The average person's not really thinking about this. But what's going to happen is people that are getting paid quite a bit of money today in high intellect jobs are going to find that they there's going to be an alternative and some AI has that potential. I mean, we're already seeing that in some diagnostic fields in medicine, but we'll see it in accounting. I was speaking to a couple of senior partners in one of the world's biggest accounting firms, and they have a series of AI experiments, if you will, going on. And they expect that, that some of this technology is going to allow them to literally downsize by tens of thousands of accountants, and that, those are people getting paid a lot of money. Once this happens, when it hits this kind of more elite sector, I think it's going to be top of mind for, for everyone. It's going to be a very difficult problem for a leader to resolve, too, because it, uh, yeah, I'm not in the business of generating jobs. I'm in the business of making my company more effective and more proficient. It's exactly right. It's, it's analogous to the older story of when a company goes through downsizing and you say, well, we're not happy that we have to let go 5,000 people, but we're doing it in part because it's going to enable us to keep the jobs we already have and be successful. And there's probably you know, a fair amount of truth in that. It's not always that way, but it's a fair amount of truth in that. I think the silver lining if, is that artificial intelligence cannot, and in, I won't say never will be able to, because who knows what new things will be invented, but for the certainly intermediate term, cannot tell us what's going to happen next, cannot invent new ideas. Creativity and the ability of humans to have this amazing creative capacity cannot be replicated through artificial intelligence. I mean, what does AI do? It uses massive amounts of data to analyze what the patterns are. What's data? Data is stuff that already happened. I think about what if Albert Einstein was here today and he was creating his theory of relativity and then the journals will say, well, where's the data to support that? And of course, it's laughable. There are, there are no data because he had that kind of genius creative spark. Of course, he's an extreme in every yeah, dimension. Yeah, and he doesn't necessarily produce examples you can actually use, does he? Well, it's, it, let's call it a, uh, an exemplar of a, of, a, of a category, which is 
creative ideas, new innovative ideas are not necessarily going to come from what has happened in the past. In fact, if history is any guide, it's not. Even if you look at the Silicon Valley giants that have been extremely innovative, Google, of course, Amazon, and Facebook, uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple. The uh, biggest companies in America here and now. Yes, absolutely. And uh, among the biggest in the world, of course. And there's a lot of controversy on whether they're doing what is right for society and whether their growth is such a wonderful thing, which I think most people didn't question even two or three years ago. But these companies were created, started this kind of entrepreneurial energy, started with that spark, with that creative idea, and a lot of experimentation. You look at Zuckerberg in the, you know, in the Harvard dorm room, creating his Facebook. The Facebook. The, the Facebook, yes. I saw the movie, too. <laughs> and, and he's tinkering around and learning about it. I don't know if, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe artificial intelligence can replicate that. Now, once you build your company, and then you want to try to become much more efficient, I think that's when it starts to kick in. What about uh, the relationship of leaders to the outside world? You talk about talent, bringing on talent as one of the main jobs of a leader, but uh, what about the connection of the company with the outside world, which tends to atrophy the more successful an organization gets? I'm seeing a trend, at least in America, and perhaps it's picked up or going to be picking up in other parts of the world, where senior leaders, CEOs of large companies are beginning to speak out on public policy issues, social issues. You're certainly seeing it, well, you're seeing it in part as a reaction to the administration in the U.S. these days, the government, and some of the ideas, if you want to call it that, that are coming uh, coming out of there. And so you're seeing leaders speaking up about what's right and what's wrong in a way that I don't think historically we've seen. I think it's a mistake not to do so because it's about values. If you don't have the right values, you don't have values your employees care about, then what kind of company are you? And I think there's a recognition of that, but for years and years and years, like forever, you wouldn't see CEOs publicly saying anything that could be construed in any way that would be against kind of the common kind of policy that's out there. So we're starting to see that. I think that's a very positive sign. Where are the great leaders? You've talked about uh, their attributes. Where are they? Who well, are they? Who are they? There are a lot, many more than I possibly could, could be studying. I think people listening to this podcast should ask themselves, who have I worked with that has helped me get better? Can I remember someone who, who could have been a coach, by the way, who could have been a teacher, not necessarily a boss, that I probably wouldn't be sitting in this seat today if it wasn't for her or for him? My experience when I ask people that question is most people people could think of that person because they never forget that person. And that, to me, is a very, very positive and affirming statement because that means that all of us almost certainly have had experience with great leaders around us. The trick is let's pay attention to them, let's reward them, let's elevate them, and let's learn from them. Yes, let's pay attention to them because if you ask individuals working for an organization to draw up a little map of uh, who matters to them to get their job done and uh, inspires them perhaps, or certainly who matters to them, it produces a very different map in most companies from the organization map the company will dish out from time to time, the hierarchies of the company, doesn't it? And in that dislocation, there are some profound truths. Yes, that's absolutely the case, the formal and informal. The people that really make a difference could be someone who's not necessarily your boss even, that takes an interest and creates opportunities in some indirect way for you. 
people know who those people are in their lives and they value them and they're loyal to those people. And I say all that because it should be yet another plug for why it's in your interest as a leader to help other people be more successful because of that loyalty, because of that connection. And because even if someone who works for you ends up leaving and doing something else, which happens, of course, a lot, you will continue to have the opportunity to interact with them, potentially to work with them. Many of them will get rehired back, which I found to be the case. And to put it into very blunt business terms, when somebody leaves your team to go wherever they're going, is that the end of the return on investment from that asset, if you will? And for most managers, for most senior executives, they say, yeah, they're gone, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I think that's a ridiculous idea. Why would you want to end your return on investment from the work that you put into directly and indirectly with the people around you just because they left? doesn't make sense to me. So the closer the informal organization chart matches the official organization chart, the better an organization may well be. Well, you know, I haven't quite thought about it that way, but it could, it could be. It could be. There are organizations, of course, that have created this kind of spiderweb approach where you don't only work in your one vertical. There's much more openness to working in different places. It's a bit of an unusual kind of management system, but it's partly a reaction to hierarchy and how people really have reacted more and more so, millennials to, at the top of the list, uh, against hierarchy. And having a bit more of a fluid opportunity to work, I think, is more effective. How's the idea of leadership changed in the time you've been studying it and working in companies? A lot of people used to talk about the imperial leader. We used to talk about the Jack Welches of the world that uh, from GE that had a tremendous track record. And I think you know that was seen as a, as a good thing. And I think the biggest change is a recognition that yes, you want you want a leader that is confident, is very self confident, that can accomplish great things. But you also want a leader that that has humility. That's not what you would describe the old imperial uh, CEO. Like. And even the top Silicon Valley type companies that are so powerful, there still is even, and, and you know, we'll see how long this lasts because they're all billionaires, no doubt, by now, right? How long it lasts that they continue to, ha- to, to retain this degree of humility. But I think that's one of the biggest changes. You have to be able to relate to the people that work with you more and more because the best talent have opportunities. They can go where they want to go when we live in a much more of a freelance world where you could work on your own through, that, through the gig economy. So the options for talented people. And remember, by talented, we have to include the word creative in there, given our AI, artificial intelligence conversation. Those people have a tremendous amount of opportunities, and they're not going to work for me unless I have the right values that they care about and they feel like they can connect with me as a human being. And that's very different than what it used to be. Professor Sidney Finkelstein of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth University, thank you very much indeed. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.